The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. It's been my precious privilege during these few days to talk to you about the great man Joshua and about the great book of Joshua. Tonight is no different. In the great book of Joshua, in the 23rd chapter, Beginning in verse 1, now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all of their enemies on every side that Joshua was old and he was advanced in years that Joshua called for all of Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers and he said to them, I am old and advanced in years. And then in verse 14, now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth, and you know that in all of your hearts and in all of your souls, that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. And it shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off of this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will turn against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. Who is this man, Joshua? Who is this old man advanced in years? Who is this man that reminds the entire nation of Israel of what God has done for them, that sets before them a blessing and a curse, life and death, evil and prosperity, success and failure? Who is this man, Joshua? He's the man that's found in Joshua, the 10th chapter. In verse 12, a man who led the Israelites and who performed one of the greatest miracles the world has ever seen at the direction of Almighty God. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it. When the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. I can't read it without goosebumps jumping out on my arm. There's never been a day like it or a day since when the Lord listened to the voice of a man and the Lord fought for Israel. When you really think about what took place, when you think about the absolute turning of the earth and all that's involved in the expression, the moon and the sun standing still for the space of approximately 12 hours, about a whole day, I don't purport to know how God did it, and I don't care. 
What I know is it's one of the most magnificent miracles found in the Bible. And it was because Joshua, the godly man of God, led the Israelites to fight the enemies of Israel that day. And God, through that nation, fought for Israel. God rained great stones down from heaven and destroyed more of God's enemies than the children of Israel themselves destroyed. It amazes me in reading commentaries of so-called so and supposedly smart men who try to explain away the miracles of the Bible. I have Barclay's little commentaries on the Bible, and in the main I like them very much. But you ever notice how he tries to explain away the miraculous? You ever notice how he tries to grapple with it and give it a natural explanation, neighbor? You either believe the miracles or you don't. There's no middle ground. God Almighty wants you to accept his power. He wants you to bow before the awesome power of Jehovah in the universe where there is the intervention of the supernatural into the natural realm until every man can understand that a miracle has transpired. There's no if and and or doubt about it. On that great and glorious day, the heavenly bodies and the earth itself responded to the prayer of Joshua to Almighty God. God fought for Israel that day. And that's what the book of Joshua is all about. They came into the very center of that land. They crossed the Jordan. <clears throat> they set up the memorial stones. They cut away the foreskin, circumcising that generation, allowing the reproach of Egypt to roll away. And then God led that army by Joshua into the very heartland of the Bible lands. They turned south. They campaigned to the south. They subjugated the land. They campaigned to the north. They subjugated the land. <clears throat> they divided the land. They possessed the land. And everything came to pass that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Joshua. It all came to pass. Not, not one thing failed of all that God had promised and that God had prophesied concerning. That's what the book of Joshua is all about. It's the story of a great man. It's the story of a nation at war. It's the story of a nation inheriting a blessing that God hundreds of years before had promised. Now comes the death of Joshua. He's old and advanced in years, 110 years old. But he's still strong for God. He's still strong for the law. He's still strong for them possessing and continual subjugation and the driving out of their enemies because he knows what's going to happen when he dies. That if they intermarry, if they're slack to continue to put the pressure on their enemies, then they'll fraternize with their enemies. They'll fellowship their enemies. They'll marry their enemies' daughters. And they'll become a thorn in their flesh. They'll become a whip to their back. They'll become a thorn in their eye. And they'll lose that great land, go into apostasy, and suffer for many years because of it. God revealed it to him. He recorded it. He reminded them in his farewell address. Verse 14 of chapter 24. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. 
and put away the gods which were your which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it seem evil to serve the Lord your God, then serve the God of the Egyptians in whose land you dwell, or serve the gods in the land in which you now live, the gods of the Amorites. But as for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. Some years ago, in a conclusion of a sermon on the family, where I felt so strongly, as I often do when I preach on the family, because I have a godly wife and I love her more than life, I've known what it is to have a rebellious son. I understand the problems of parents. I've counseled with hundreds of people and children in their lifetimes. I've read extensively. I've prayed for them. I've suffered with them. I've buried their children. I've baptized their children. And so I know a little bit about the family. And as I was concluding that sermon, and I quoted the passage by Joshua, as for me and my house, we'll serve Jehovah. A man held it against me in the audience and later used it and said, you said that so arrogantly. Before God, I didn't mean it arrogantly, but how in the world do you say when you're sitting before people by the hundreds and the thousands, as was true on this occasion, you're setting before them a choice of life and death, of blessing and cursing, and when you are exhorting them to serve the God of creation, the God that can make the sun and the moon and the stars stand still, a God that can subjugate an entire land and nations found therein, and when you're contrasting this great living God with the power of life and death to the pagan idols, to Molech, to Baal, to the Ashtaroth, and the immoral gods of the pagans, and you're calling upon them for a choice to be made, and you're trying to make them understand that they should serve God, and you're putting everything you have in it knowing that it's about the end of your life and it may be the last speech you'll ever make. How in the world do you read that, feel that, understand that, and not scream from the housetops, as for me and my house, we'll serve Jehovah? I don't know how else to say it. One occasion I sat down on the bed with my precious wife, and her tears flowed like water. And our hearts were breaking within us. And I said to her, we are going to go to heaven. I may not control our children, but they've reached the age of accountability and they have stiffened their necks and hardened their hearts before God, but you and I are going to heaven. I'll weep all the way to the pearly gates. If they do not choose to follow our example, if they will have none of our God, we are going to heaven. And if every friend I have turns away, every child I have apostatizes, if every person I've ever known turns away from God, 
I want to go to heaven. And I told my wife, I said, we have lived our life to the best of our ability to this point in service to God and service to our fellow man. And with all due respect to everybody and everything, we're going to heaven. And we settled it there that Saturday morning on the foot of our bed. We've watched our children grow up, some faithful, some not so faithful, praying that they'll live and they'll come back to God and that they'll be strong. But I say it with all the power of my being. If it seem evil to you to serve Jehovah, then serve the gods of the land in which you dwell. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve Jehovah. We're going to serve Jehovah. There's set before each of us this day a choice. And neighbor, the free moral agency of man is screamed from every page of our Bible. I was on the plane last year going to Steubenville, Ohio to hold, be a part of the lectureship with Brother Taylor and various ones. And the lady across the aisle saw me studying my Bible. Said, are you a preacher? Yes, ma'am, I'm a preacher. What kind of preacher are you? I said, I preach for the Church of Christ. Oh, I know the United Church of Christ. I said, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We're the Church of Christ you read about in the Bible. Oh, I know who you are. You believe you can fall from grace. I said, yes, ma'am, the Bible teaches it. And we got in the biggest argument you've ever seen right there on the plane. And that woman was loud-mouthed and hard-headed. And she got louder and louder, and finally I held her feet to the fire with the word of God, and I said, you've denied the free moral agency of man. You say you cannot so sin as to be eternally lost. And I read Galatians 5 and 4. Ye who would be justified by the law, you're severed from Christ. You're fallen away from grace. And I pushed her on that. And finally, in anger, she whirled away and talked to the lady next to her the entire trip. And I followed her off the plane. Just about the time we got out where the brethren were standing, I caught up with her with my old gimpy leg. Old Noel Meredith was standing there. I don't know whether Robert was there. He may have been. But there's two or three brethren standing there waiting for me to get there. And I touched her on the shoulder, and she turned around, and I said, I'll see you at the judgment. And I'm in it. She had her chance. God set before her that very day a choice. She had a man of God who loves the book pleading for her soul, and she rejected it. There's set before you this day a choice. Deuteronomy 31 and 15, Moses told those Israelites, he said, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. I set before you life and death. You have a choice. Joshua has repeated it throughout this book. And when he gets to the very end, he reminds them of the choice. You're creatures of choice. The entire book of Joshua deals with the choice of the Israelite. Rahab the harlot chose the faithful works of God in order that she might prevail, and prevail she did. Achan, a child of God, chose to steal the devoted thing. Thirty-six valiant warriors died. Three thousand fled. And the man destroyed himself, his wife, his children, all of his family and goods. Why? Because he made the wrong choice. The book of Joshua is a book of choices. 
God sets before every one of us every day the choice. You're going to live or you're going to die. You'll have good success, great prosperity, or cursing and damnation. And neighbor, that's the way the book ends. And we need to take it to heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The book of Deuteronomy teaches in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4 they had a choice. God exhorted them to love the God with all the power of their being. What more is involved? Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That's the totality of your being. There's just not anything else left in us. And that's what God wants. And so they're set before every man this choice. It's either God or Satan. And you're going to serve one or the other. There's no middle ground. Joshua didn't give many middle ground. You're either going to serve Jehovah God or you're going to serve other gods. There's not any middle ground. Elijah stood before the 400 prophets of Baal and the entire Israelite nation on Mount Carmel. And he cried out and he said, How long go ye limping between the two sides? If God be God, serve him. If Baal be God, serve him. And you know what those compromising Jews did? The record says they answered him not a word. They were gutless wonders. You wonder if they had any. They wouldn't choose. And so Elijah, Elijah made them choose. The contest on Mount Carmel put to death 400 prophets of Baal. And I'll guarantee you, Israel learned a lesson that day. They decided to serve God. And so it is, good people, we have a choice. You can love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or you can be a servant of Satan. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should not shine on them. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. You can either serve God or you can serve Satan. Satan goes about as an adversary, as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may drink down to destruction. Literally, 1 Peter 5 and 8. They're set before you every day, a choice. You're going to serve Almighty God or you're going to serve Satan. You have the power of choice, but there's no middle ground. You must decide, you must choose. No decision is a decision always for the devil. Men say, I'm not going to choose right now. You've already chosen. Whosoever is not with God is against God. Whosoever doesn't work for God works against God. There's no other way it can be. The very nature of God demands allegiance, loyalty, steadfastness, faithfulness, or else you're diametrically opposed to what God stands for. You just don't have a choice other than the choice. It's either God or Satan. Which will it be? And when you've made that great decision, you continue to have choices all your life until finally the last day and you have no choice. But if you choose God, then you face another choice. You're either going to serve Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, who's the ruler of all the earth, are you going to serve the rulers of the world? That's why Jesus Christ said, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. Matthew 17 and verse 5 on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. God wants us to choose the Christ. Men constantly rejected Christ all the days of his life. They were going to hold on to Moses and in turn hold on to Jehovah God. They're going to reject the Christ and hold to God. No, they aren't. No Jew can do that. Luke 10 and verse 16, Jesus said to the apostles, He that hears you hears me. He that rejects you rejects me. And he that rejects me rejects him that sent me. You don't have a choice. You're either going to take the Christ or you're going to lose it all. God sent his only begotten son into the world, good people, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For 30 long years I've wrestled with Muslims in Africa and America trying to make them understand you cannot hold on to Mohammed and Allah and Jehovah God and Jesus Christ. It's an impossibility for they're diametrically opposed to each other in the Koran and the Bible. The God of the Bible is not the God of the Koran. The God of the Koran is not the God of the Bible. The teaching of Mohammed is not the teaching of Christ, and the teaching of Christ is not the teaching of Mohammed. I cannot help it if there are 700 million Muslims in the world that have rejected the deity of Christ, embraced Islam and Mohammed. I cannot help it if there are 700 million of them, and there are. They still have rejected their only hope of salvation. The very first Pentecost after the resurrection. Deity of Jesus Christ was being established in Acts 2. Peter said, Lord, all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ. Ruler, master, the anointed one. That God hath made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And for the very first time in human history, in the name of Christ, remission of sins was offered to the world. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, and passage followed. Acts 4 and 12, they stood speaking of the Christ and said, In none other is there salvation, neither is there any other name under heaven given among men, wherein we might be saved. It's Jesus Christ are you rejected the Savior of the world? What are the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Muslims and the followers of Confucius and the Jains going to do? They're either going to come up to the lick log and accept Christ, neighbor, or they're going to perish. That's not a judgmental decision. That's a fact of life. God hath highly exalted him, the Christ, and given him a name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in the heaven, things on the earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, ruler, under the glory of God the Father. I cannot that there are 400 million Hindus that reject it. I cannot help it if there are 700 million Muslims that reject it. 
I cannot help it if multiplied millions of denominationalists do not understand it. Jesus is Lord of all and his authority is paramount and his headship and rulership are supreme. So you accept the Christ or you reject God. There's no middle ground. Choose you this day whom you'll serve. When you've accepted the God and you've accepted the Christ of the Bible, then you have to make another choice. You're going to accept the church of Christ or you're going to reject it and accept the era of the world. There's no middle ground. You're either in the kingdom or you're out. You're either remaining in the world or else you're in the church, the body of Christ. There's no other place to be. Like all the great choices that God has given us, it's an either or, not a both and. And it's tragic that men can't understand this, even in the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ invites the entire world to obey the gospel of our Lord. The Lord Christ gave the great commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 15, and 16. The Bible teaches we've been translated out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Colossians 1 and 13. God made Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Ephesians 1 and 23. You're either in the church of the Lord or you're out. You're going to either accept the kingdom of God or you're going to remain in the world. And there are passages that show you how to get into the church and there are passages that show you don't remain in the world. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the vain glory of life. They're not of the Father, but they're of the world. And the world and the lust thereof passes away. But he that does the will of God shall abide forever. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. You've got a choice. You can either remain in the world or you can become a part of the kingdom of God. The choice is yours. No one has the right to force you. But we have a right and an obligation to encourage you and to warn you and to plead with you and to beg you to obey the gospel of Christ for your soul's sake. Not concerned primarily with numbers on a roll or money in a treasury. We're primarily and fundamentally concerned with the souls of men. I told some of them today, talking to me about Africa, I said, we could baptize 5,000 people a year in Tanzania easily, but they'd be improperly taught. And we cannot furnish that many preachers to teach them in the congregation so they'd fall away and go back to the world. If you just want to go out and dump people in the name of Christ, we could do 5,000 a year. But that's not converting people. That's not helping people to understand how to work and worship and serve God. And the people that we baptize are people that are taught and they're in position where we can have a teacher working with them to nurture them so they may grow thereby unto salvation. You know, I have actually refused to go and baptize people where there was no way we could reach them on a regular basis or send anybody there to help them. Somebody says, that's crazy. You don't know anything about 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22, if you feel it's crazy. A lot of people read the Bible and they want to be baptized and keep their adulterous mate. 
They haven't been taught. They want to continue to drink and commit fornication and gamble and dance. All they want to do is be baptized. They don't want to grow. They don't want to give up their sin. They just want to be immersed for the remission of sin. When they don't understand, they must count the cost. I'm not a lackey boy at the beck and call of everybody that wants me to jump through a hoop and do what they want to do without regard to the consequence. You have a choice. You can remain in the world or you can become a member of the body of Christ. And you have a further choice then that you must make. You could either worship in spirit or in, and in truth or else you can continue in the false vain re, re, uh, worship of the religious world around about you. God's a spirit and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Where do we learn the truth? Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter 4 and 11. You can show a man how to worship in truth. You can teach him. You can show him from God's word what items of worship consist of. Or you have a choice. You can remain in the world. Jesus talked about it. Matthew 15, 7 through 9. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the commands of men. That's vain worship. It's false. It's empty. It's useless. And the world's filled with it. You have a choice. I have gone to churches with my friends to show them that I was concerned about their souls. And I've watched the mass being said. I've smelled the incense burning. And I've watched the candles be lit. I've listened to the prayers. And when we left, they'd say, that's why I go there. Because I like it. And I would hum humbly point out, but it's a violation of the word of God. But I like it. But it's not the truth. I like it. I know men like it. Men like all kinds of sin. Men love will worship. Men love to teach as their doctrine the commandments of men. But it won't save their souls. They have a choice. They can remain right where they are. They can like it till they die and pay the price. Or they can bow the knee to King Jesus and they can learn the truth and they can be zealous for the truth and they can ultimately be saved. The choice is theirs. But then they face another choice. You're either going to live after the spirit or after the flesh. God allows you to make that choice. And the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit for these are contrary one to the other that you may not do the things that you would. But if you walk after the spirit you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5, 15 and 16. So then brethren we're debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh for if we live after the flesh we must die but if by the spirit we put to death the deeds of the body then shall we live. Romans 8, 10 through 12. Know ye not that to whom you present yourself, his slaves you are whom you obey, 
whether sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. But thanks be to God that whereas you were the slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of doctrine whereunto you were delivered in being made free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 16 through 18. 1 Peter, the second chapter and verse 11, abstain from fleshly lust which war against your soul. You have a choice. You can either be crucified with Christ, put to death the works of the flesh, or you can revel in them, you can live in them and die in them. You have that choice. God gives you the power to make up your own mind. Nobody on earth can make the choice for you. Preachers can rant and rave. They can pray. They can exhort. The church can discipline. But nobody can make you do what you ought to do. When my grandmother was about 17 years old and my grandfather was 19 years old, they got married. And like most old hard-headed boys, Grandpa wanted to go to a dance one night. And he talked Grandma into going against her better judgment. And the church found out about it, and you know that the church tried to get them to repent, and they didn't want to repent, so the church withdrew from them. And when the church withdrew from Grandma, Grandma went back. And she spent her entire life faithful to the Lord and died in the Lord. And Grandpa hardened his heart and refused to go back to church. He spent the last three days of his life on his deathbed praying for forgiveness for his hard heart because he turned away from the truth of God. I saw him on his deathbed. I was a boy of six years old. The Word of God softens some, hardens others. You have a choice. You have a choice. Every day God sets before you the blessing and the curse, life and death. You have a choice. Choose you this day whom you'll serve. In America we have a choice. We can put the kingdom of God first or we can serve the God of materialism. In America you have a choice. And boy, the line of demarcation is clear. Matthew 6 and 33, Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. But on the other hand, Take heed and keep yourselves from all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Matthew 6, 33, Luke 12 and 15. Charge them that are rich in this world's goods, that they be not high-minded nor have their hopes set on the uncertainty of riches, but upon God, who gives us richly all these things to enjoy, that they do good, be willing to, to, to distribute, ready to communicate, that they may lay up in store, that they may lay hold on life, which is life indeed. First Timothy 6, 17 and 19. You have a choice. You spend all your time getting and accumulating and squandering and saving. Or you can seek the kingdom of God first and enjoy the blessings of God at the same time. You have a choice. But we in America are so tied up with our materialism sometimes even in the church men put God second or third or fourth don't they? Surely they do. You have a choice. God sets before us everyday choices. 
We who are married, we have a choice. We can either have the home as God would have it, or we can allow the feminists and Satan to continue to rule. You have a choice. You have a choice. The home as God would have it is one of the most beautiful, perfect things that God has ever given the world. To those of us who are happily married, who know what the Word of God says about marriage, who understand the physical and the spiritual blessings of marriage, we're here to tell you that the home as God would have it is the vestibule of heaven itself. How often I thank God for my wife and how often I tell her, baby, when I get to heaven, I know it'll be because of you. And if I had all the women in the world to choose again and I was young making a choice, I'd choose you a thousand times over every woman that I've ever known or seen. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. You think I don't love my home? But I have a choice. I can either honor God, reverence that wife, be the head of that house, lead her to spiritual heights of maturity, or I can refuse to be the cornerstone of discipline. I can refuse the spiritual headship of my wife. I can turn everything over to her, shirk my responsibility, lay down on the job. I have the power of choice. But there's only one choice to be made if I want happiness now and heaven hereafter. You just have one choice. And finally, you have a choice. You can seek the promises of God or you can refuse the promises of God and expect God's wrath. You can live in such a way that you will hear these welcome words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Or... Depart from me, ye cursed, into the eternal fire. And neighbor, at the point of death, at the point of the second coming, your choices are over. Your options are out. You've made your final choice. Then God will make the last one for you. These shall go away into everlasting life. These shall go away into everlasting condemnation. Joshua stood before that great nation and he said, you've got a choice. You can either serve God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength or you can serve the God of the Amorites or the Egyptian. The choice is yours. But for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I believe most of us would cry out with Joshua and say, for me and my house, we'll serve